This is William Mays of the Mays Legal Group. I'm a Michigan criminal defense attorney with over a decade and a half of experience fighting drunk driving cases. I've been in the courts, I fought the prosecutors, and I know the police officers. I know Michigan's drunk driving laws inside and out, and I'm going to share with you what I know so you don't get stopped, you don't get arrested, and you don't get burned by the system. For more information, Look at my webpage, www.michigan-drunk-driving.com or call my office, toll-free, 888-941-1122. Now on with the show. Okay, today uh, I've got a special guest uh, phoned in from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, retired police officer Tony Corrado. Mr. Corrado uh, was a police officer for approximately almost 18 years. Uh, he had uh, 2,700 DUI arrests during the course of his career. He's a drug recognition expert and a, an instructor of instructors in the standardized field sobriety tests. Mr. Corrado, can you introduce yourself a little bit further? Yes, absolutely. I spent... Uh Almost 18 years with the city of Atlanta police as a police officer. Uh, my last 14 years of that service, I was on a DUI task force. And uh, in totality, I've probably trained over 2,000 law enforcement officers in DUI detection, standardized field sobriety testing, drugs that impair driving, and uh, certified officers as drug recognition experts. So, Mr. Corrado or, or Tony, when did you retire, actually? I retired, William, um... May 1st, 2006, and I started my company. May 2nd, 2006, Tony Corrado Enterprises, LLC. And William, I love teaching. I'm a teacher trainer. I And what I do now is I teach uh, judges, prosecutors, public defenders, defense attorneys, the general public on these same field sobriety evaluations so everybody has a working knowledge how to apply it to their particular type case in a court of law. And then, of course, you, you also testify as an expert uh, yeah. across the nation. You, you've been to a number of states as an expert witness, haven't you? I have. In the last seven years, I've been qualified as an expert witness in 16 states over 200 times in uh, various fields. Uh, the theory and science of evidential breath alcohol testing utilizing the Datamaster DMP, Intoxilizer 8000, Intoxilizer 5000, uh, the effects of alcohol and drugs on the human body, been qualified as an expert as a drug recognition expert, and the administration interpretation of these DUI detection and standardized filter body evaluations. Now, Tony, uh, can you tell us what field sobriety tests are? Sobriety tests, in general, are mental and physical tasks done at the same time. It's called the concept of dividing your attention. Uh, according to NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, these are uh, different type tools that law enforcement use, uses to help them at roadside to make the correct arrest decision, whether to arrest a person or to filter body or let them go. Now, these are the roadside tests that people see on TV or what? Yes, those are the ones you see on TV. You see a person uh, possibly following a, uh, 
an object or a finger with the eyes. You see him walking the line. You see him standing on one foot. Uh, you see him doing a finger touching the nose type thing on the roadside. And all the motorists that pass by go, man, I'm glad that's not me. Now, how long have these tests been implemented? How long have they been in use by the government? Going back from the original validation study, uh, when they were first developed on the standardized battery elements, uh, that's dating back to the late 70s. Uh, the late 70s is when they started uh, the standardized battery, which is horizontal gaze and stagmas, which is an eye test, uh, the walk and turn and the one-leg stand. Prior to that, officers really didn't have a structured, standardized methodology to look at impaired drivers or smell alcohol and be able to do standardized field sobriety testing because there was no standard. The old joke goes pretty much is, you know, the old trooper, no matter what state you're in, would smell alcohol blowing my hat. I smell the odor of alcoholic beverage. Guess what? You're going to jail. And that was their field sobriety test back then. To make things more consistent, to make things more uniform around the country, to make things more court acceptable, they came up with a standardized battery, which has been in place since the late 70s, that officers are using around the country. Well, let's fast forward into the mid-80s. By that time, would it be fair to say that uh, the standardized tests were being used? They were in the, in the mid-80s, yes. But you have to realize, during the original validation study done in the late 70s, uh, that original study was rejected by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration due to the fact that the developer of these actual studies, Dr. Marceline Burns, she was the director of the Southern California Research Institute. They were subcontracted by NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to develop these tests. And, uh, William, a lot of people don't know that that original study was rejected by NHTSA because of the high false positives in, involved in that particular study. Well, what happened after that? Well, after that, you know, due to the high false positives, uh, 47% of the individuals they deemed were over 0.10 BAC standard were actually under. So that study was rejected, and that's when they came out with the 1981 study. Now, the 1981 study, they did a little bit better. They dropped their false positive rate down to 32%, and that's the one that was trained all throughout the 80s and almost to the end of the 90s, actually. Let's talk about today. Uh, it's my understanding that all 50 states have now adopted the standardized field sobriety tests? They have. Uh, now, Michigan, I I've had you up here uh, several times to testify in court, and uh, you've seen a broad variety of field sobriety tests that have been used here in Michigan. Michigan is uh, a unique animal in and of itself when it comes to law enforcement training and their ability to do field sobriety tests and what they use and how it's interpreted, and what judges perceive, which is probable cause for arrest. William, you and I have been battling this for years to set officers to a higher standard than what we've seen in the past. And yet they still use their alphabet and counting backwards. And Absolutely. They're using alphabet testing, which, uh, quite frankly, you and I have used. Uh, we haven't done that since, uh, say, your alphabet since, what, elementary school? You know, and here you are on roadside and your adrenaline is going. And what a lot of people don't understand, when the adrenaline starts pumping through the body, it does a lot of things. It makes
makes you nervous, makes you shake, you can forget things. And most of all, it shuts down your short-term memory. That's, you know, if you've ever been in a traumatic event, for example, William, uh, been in a car wreck, you don't remember everything, but you just focus on one thing that happened. That's what it's like at roadside for a lot of uh, individuals. Uh, they don't remember a lot of things because they're scared. As a standardized field sobriety training instructor, tell me a little bit about that course, the, the standardized training that you teach these officers. The standardized training, we get into the three phases of DUI detection. You know, the ultimate goal pretty much is to recognize these individuals that are impaired at roadside and decrease alcohol-related fatalities across the nation. Um, these officers, when I teach them, they are taught different phases of DUI detection. You have phase one, which is called vehicle in motion. Vehicle in motion is the probable cause or reasonable articulable suspicion an officer has to stop a vehicle. And then you move into personal contact, which is phase two. That's the face-to-face -face interview with the subject while they're still seated in the car. That's where the officer comes to the fork in the road and says, you know what, this person was failing to maintain single lane, okay? They were weaving out of their lane. I stopped them. They stopped properly. And you know what? They're eating a cheeseburger. The officer may just say, stop eating and driving or stop putting your makeup on and driving. Quit texting and driving. Get off your phone and start driving properly. Issue a citation or not issue a citation and let them go. But if there's alcohol involved, then the officer moves into phase three, which is called pre-arrest screening. That is a structured, standardized field sobriety testing. Tony, you've, you've trained several thousand police officers in this National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's standardized field sobriety test battery. Now, how do you go about training these officers? It's called the DWI detection and standardized field sobriety testing. It's broken down into different segments. Uh, we talk about detection and general deterrence of DUI drivers. We talk about the legal environment. Um, we talk about the overview of detection, note-taking, testimony. Then we talk about the three phases of DUI detection, which I, would, I just mentioned, which was the vehicle in motion, the personal contact, and then the pre-arrest screening. And then we cover the concepts and principles of standardized field sobriety testing. And then after we have these officers, we train them, we do proficiency examinations to make sure they're doing it properly. Because, it, you know, if you don't administer field sobriety evaluations properly, you're going to get a lot of false positive results. And in this particular course, we dose individuals anywhere from 0 .000 up to approximately a 0 .13 or 0 .14 blood alcohol concentration and anywhere in between. And these officers, through these field sobriety evaluations, it's a tool to helping the officers make the correct arrest decision at roadside. I, I've got a few of these NHTSA manuals. I think my oldest one is from 2002. And then I've also got a 2004 and a 2006. Why are they constantly reprinting new manuals? They're constantly reprinting manuals because the criminal defense is successfully attacking this non-peer-reviewed type evaluations. The more 
criminal defense looks into these type of valuations and the more objections and uh, case law is made based upon field sobriety testing, this uh, backs up and punts, so to speak, and say, you know what? We need to change this because we're getting beat up by the criminal defense. And that's the reason they keep, they keep changing this. Right. And my personal opinion is you have a scientific test that's been developed in the 70s, early 80s, and you think it's the best thing since sliced bread. Why change it? Right. And I guess we have seen that with, you know, years ago, they, I think the manual indicated that the one leg stand is a difficult test for some people to perform. Exactly. In the old field sobriety manuals prior to 1995 under test conditions, William, they used to state in these manuals under test conditions, some people have difficulty performing this task when sober, period. And guess what? Between 1995 and 2000, they took it out. Why? Because the criminal defense was getting a hold of that and presenting it to juries around the country because it was true. Have they removed the test environment conditions such as reasonably dry, non-slippery level surface for conducting the one-leg stand and the walk and turn? Uh, William, I'm glad you asked that because we I just got a, my hands on a copy a few weeks ago of the March 2013 edition uh the participant guide of DUI detection, standardized field sobriety testing, and yes, test conditions... Uh, stating these tests might be done on a reasonable, hard, dry, level, non-slippery surface. Uh, individuals over 65 years of age may have difficulty performing these evaluations. And, for example, the one-leg uh, one stand, a person 50 pounds over in body weight may have difficulty performing this. That's all gone. 2006, my understanding was that NHTSA had published two different manuals, and that the second one was then withdrawn or revoked or rescinded? Well, they actually put it to, there was a February of 2006 and a August of 2006. One of the two were revoked or rejected. I mean, they were both, they were pretty much identical manuals. There are, you know, a few typos here and there, but uh, it's very, very odd for the federal government to put out two manuals in one year in this particular program. That was the first time it was ever done. And has there been one Very since 2006? Uh, no, this is the first one. This is the longest era we've ever been through. What, seven years? Seven years. Guessing, uh, seven years. I mean, since we've had a manual put out. And I'm like, you know, who's dragging their feet? Who's doing what? Uh, I guarantee you that all the big heads in NISA who are writing these manuals are sitting down going, you know what? What's Tony Corrado attacking? What's Lance Platt attacking? You know, what's Bob LaPierre attacking in these manuals where uh, these individuals are killing us in court because the officers can't do their jobs correctly? So how can we combat this? So guess what? They take all the limitations out on field sobriety. Well, well let's describe this new manual so that, you know, the layperson or maybe, uh, you know, an attorney that hasn't taken the course, what's the difference between, say, the last 2006 manual... And this new one. First of all, um, they start off the manual with the introduction of drugged driving. Drugged is D-R-U-G-G-E-D, drugged. So it's, it's hard to articulate over the phone. No, I understand. Drug driving. And that's very, very odd. These, you know, for the past 30 years, this introduction of drug driving, 
appeared in the back of the standardized field sobriety manuals. Now they appear in the front. And when you start talking about people under influence of drugs while driving, you know, what is a drug, what is this, whatever, they're trying to say people are on the influence of drugs more than alcohol. And also, you know, as I look through this manual, William, it's set up as a PowerPoint presentation. They have little screens and then notes off to the side. Is this the first manual that's done that? Yes. <laughs> There's, it, it is not user-friendly. For the person who very, very, is the first time ever taking this course, it's very confusing. This manual, in my opinion, was written on an eighth-grade education level. It's terrible. You you and I have, have trained this course together on a couple of occasions. Uh, I mean, even teaching it to lawyers, uh, trying to impart to them the stages of the investigation and how to properly conduct the field sobriety tests, that is enough to fill up three days. But to then introduce drug driving, tell us a little bit about your experience as a drug recognition expert. What what does that entail? A drug recognition expert, I was actually in the first class for the state of Georgia to receive that certification from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Um, that was done as early as 1993 through 1994. Uh, and actually, when we come up to 1996, I was actually the first instructor for the state of Georgia to actually have a national certification to teach this program. What, what, what everyone needs to know what a DRE is, a drug recognition expert, it's not looking at a substance in your hand saying, hey, that's marijuana. Hey, that's crack cocaine. No. A drug recognition expert is a person who specializes in individuals who blow under the statutorily per se limit of a .08, and they have something else on board in inducing the impairment, and the DRE, or drug recognition expert, comes in and finds out what that other substance is. So we can tell through observable signs and symptoms, both clinically, blood pressure, pulse, body temperature, and psychophysically, through these field sobriety tests, William, we were talking about earlier, and we form an opinion based upon what we see during a 40-minute evaluation. We go through a thorough 12-step process and form an opinion based upon what we see both clinically and psychophysically on these individuals. So that's what a DRE is. Well, and it's a, it's a long and involved program to train an officer to become a DRE, isn't it? It is. Yeah, uh, you're I, talking about a preschool uh, going uh, lasting two or three days. You're talking about a seven-day, eight-hour-day uh, DRE uh, actual uh, school itself. Uh, you're talking about a lot of field training, doing live evaluations on live suspects at uh, like jail facilities, and uh, a comprehensive, uh, huge test at the end. I remember my test back in 1994. It took me 13 hours to complete, and it was all handwritten. So you have to memorize uh, onset and duration of different drugs, all general indicators of seven different drug categories, and it goes on and on and on. There's a lot of a lot of medical involved uh, with the DRE program. So I guess if it's, I mean, it's difficult enough to teach a new police officer how to conduct these standardized field sobriety tests for alcohol, why would they introduce drugs before they even start talking about the concepts of drunken driving? That's a good, pro that's a great question. What I'm thinking they're doing is they're trying to 
pre-educate these individual type officers to be a drug recognition expert. As I look through this manual, I mean, they start talking about things of uh, uh, a lot of uh, definitions in, in, the, in the beginning of the book that mimic the actual DRE evaluation or DRE program. For example, conjunctivitis, uh, you're talking about axon and dendrites of the neurotransmitter of the nerve, uh, of the nervous system. You talk about sympathetic, parasympathetic nerves. That's, in my opinion, that's what they're doing. They're trying to uh, edu- educate these individuals and just give a precursor and say, you know what, this is what you can really get into with this. You know, talking about the different hormones and endocrine system and the different uh, nervous systems of the body and uh, poly drug use. I mean, it goes on, goes on forever. What a PDR is, physician death reference. I mean, that never, ever appeared, you know, as well as I do, William, in any standardized filter body manual. No, it doesn't. Yeah, and may- maybe instead of education, it's more along the lines of indoctrination. Yes. seems to me that the new 2013 is more pictures than it is substance to actually use. Absolutely. And, and the biggest part, William, when you're talking about this, I mean, you and I have done this for many, many, many years. A lot of this big bull print is gone from this manual. For example, it's necessary to emphasize, you know, when validation applies only when administered in a prescribed standardized manner. And the standardized clues are used to assess the suspect's performance. And also, the standardized criteria are employed to interpret the performance. That's huge. And that's straight out of the book. Or at least the the 2006 and all the way back to the original NHTSA manuals, but it's not in the 2013. Always been there. Yeah, it's not in the 2013. No, it's gone. They took that page out. And the main thing is of this uh, whole thing, William, is if any one of the standardized field sobriety test elements is changed, the validity is compromised. Uh, apparently, as of 2013, it no longer is compromised. <laughs> it's not compromised anymore. So the. 16-year-old gymnast is held to the same accountability as a 70-year-old person on roadside doing a walk-and-turn one-leg stand. Well, now, Marceline Burns, the so-called grandmother of field sobriety tests, one of the researchers at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's subcontractor, the Southern California Research Institute, in January 2008 with a study that she put out called The Robustness of the HGN Test. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the robustness study? Let me tell you some numbers, okay? These are the total numbers from the robustness of HGN study. Uh, 178 clients, HGN intentionally performed incorrectly. So they did it wrong, 178 times. 100 times, the officers recorded four more clues with BACs below a .08. What you have to understand, four more clues gives an officer probable cause to arrest. So overall, that is a 56% false positive. In the total study, 285 total HGN evaluations were done. 151 times, officer recorded four more clues with BACs below a .08. That's a 53% false positive. Now, here's the last stats. I know everybody hates to hear numbers, but the officers that performed this study they were not just your standard everyday officers. Uh, William, these were DREs, 
DRE instructors. This is the cream of the crop for NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. These are very experienced 10, 15, 20-year officers that did this study. Guess what? When they did this HGN and they properly administered it during this robustness study, they did a total of 107 total HGN evaluations 51 times. The officers observed four more clues with their BAC below a .08. William, that's a 48% false positive. So let's flip a coin. Heads you're going to jail, tails you're not. And that's the robustness of HGN study. This robustness study, though, at the time, it was really pushed by NHTSA, and I've noticed that in the new NHTSA manual, the 2013 manual, they've made no reference to it whatsoever. Absolutely not. It is not even touched upon. This was supposed to be NHTSA's latest, greatest study, the robustness of HGN, and guess what? It does not appear in the NHTSA 2013 manual. They're trying to cover it up and say, you know what? Hey, we never did this test, and we're not going to... We never did the study, and we're not going to refer back to it. Well, now, same Dr. Burns, Marceline Burns, back in 1998, conducted the San Diego study to validate the standardized field sobriety tests when the law went from .10 down to .08. For years, we had heard that the standardized field sobriety test battery was validated for BACs, blood alcohol contents, in excess of .10, and we were told that it was, uh, what was it, HGM was 77% accurate, walk and turn was 68% accurate, and one leg stand was 65% accurate. Then when President Clinton signed into law the 08 standard, Dr. Burns had to go back to work and validate these things for a lower BAC and set out to do that in San Diego in 1998 and came up with spectacular numbers to show that higher percentage figures to show just how great Absolutely. these tests were. Number one, prior to the administration of any field sobriety evaluation in the San Diego study, the use of a preliminary breath test device was used. So these officers at Roadside had a known potential BAC of what this person was going to be prior to them doing the actual validation studies. What you have to understand about uh, San Diego also, the average BAC in the San Diego study was about a .153 grams per cent. William, that's a lot of alcohol. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell if a person's a .15. I know that Dr. Burns concluded in 1998 with the San Diego study that there was, combining some of these tests together, you came up with something that was in the 90 percentile, 92 or 91% accurate. They did. And, And I don't understand how for another decade, no other significant study came out until the robustness study, which shows numbers going in the in, in the opposite direction, you know, showing that these tests are not nearly as reliable as they've been purported to be in the past. Yes. Well, you may have to understand, when I was a police officer and I learned this DUI detection standardized field sobriety testing, you know what? I never questioned authority. And I drank the Kool-Aid when I was a police officer. And... Since my retirement over seven years ago, I've learned to dissect these studies, and I want to find out what they're all about. You know what? This is government's work at its finest to take individuals off the road and create numbers for revenue. That's the bottom line behind all this. 
you know, you have to ask yourself, are field sobriety tests designed for failure? Yes, they are. In my opinion, yes. And there's been studies that support my opinion, too. And do you have a website that people can visit? I do. It's www.duiexpertwitness.com. Or I'm always available to talk to anybody. My number is 404-906-2153. It's my Atlanta number, and uh, I don't answer. I'm either in court or on the phone, but I will return your call. Well, Mr. Corrado, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, you have yourself a good day. You, you too, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is William Mays of the Mays Legal Group. For more information, visit us online at www.michigan-drunk-driving.com or call our offices toll-free at 888-941-1122.